I'll show it to you in just a minute. Just a little book. <laughs> called Figures of Speech Used in the Bible. Now, I've got one back there. It's about this thick. And I just opened it here. And here's the table of contents on the left. But see, it's collapsed. So you have, I'll just open it up so you get some kind of an idea how detailed. It's got like a 30-page table of contents in the print copy. So that gives you a just a little bit of an example. The first division, fi- figures involving omissions, affecting words. You have ellipsis, and all of this is just talking about ellipsis. And then you have another zygma, or unequal yoke. And most of the names that he gives, like ascendaton and aphoresis, uh, ap- ap- apocope, or Latin or Greek names because the Romans and the Greeks did a lot of work with figures of speech. And so these have names that go back to classical Greek and classical Rome. Well, you can look in the, in the index for a pass for the passage and see if it's listed in the index. And if you have an idea of the, generally the kind of uh, figure of speech that it is, you can look that up, look at simile or metaphor, and just kind of look that way. <clears throat> and if you have logos, you can actually just look for the passage itself pretty easily to see if it's uh, listed anywhere in the in the text. Okay, we're going to look at chapter 50 in the workbook. Still focusing on Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19, and asking a few more questions related to understanding the passage. If we read those verses, what is your initial impression about the degree of uh, Habakkuk's faith in God? Does he have a great faith in God? Does he have a mediocre faith in God? Is he just struggling with his faith? How, how much faith how strong do you think his faith is based on um, three seventeen to nineteen? Right, it's it's really really strong. The question is then, um, then we go on and ask the next question to begin to form a literary context. Go back and read Habakkuk three sixteen. How does that single verse influence the tone of the verse that follows? So 3.16 says, When I heard, my body trembled. This is his response to hearing God. Uh, when I heard, this is a prayer. Chapter 1 is his initial dialogue with God. Chapter 2 is his response in a uh, hymn of uh, our praise of faith. And then chapter 3 Excuse me, chapter 3 is his prayer. Uh, chapter 2 is the Lord's answer to, to his second question, rather. And then chapter 3 is his prayer as a response to what God has uh, revealed to him. So chapter 3, 
By verse 16, he says, When I heard, my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered my bones. What a great um, image that is. See, that's does rottenness literally enter his bones? Do his bones truly become rotten? No. So that's where you apply these principles. You ask that kind of a question and apply those principles related to literal and figurative interpretation. Literal rottenness did not enter his bones, so he's saying it was as if rottenness. It's a metaphor. It was as if rottenness. He doesn't state it with a like or an as. I'm adding that, but that's what he's comparing it to. He he just and, and I don't know if you've ever been in a time of of uh, extreme grief or emotional distress over a period of time or been profoundly depressed but that's what it feels like it just feels like you're just you're just weak all over you've just something's just been sucked out of you he says rottenness entered my bones and i trembled in myself that i might rest in the day of trouble when he comes up to the people he will invade them with his troops. And then he reaches his conclusion, and that's verses 17 through 19. So <clears throat> how does verse 16 affect the tone of verses 17 through 19? What would you say is the tone or the mood of verse 16? A human response to it, it, it's a human response, but how does it, how, how, what's the feel? You know, when you ask, what's the mood there? What's the feel? What's, what's the feel of verse 16? Fear, trepidation, Fear, trepidation anxiety, depression. I mean, it, he's really down. What's the tone of verses 17 through 19? Yeah, exaltation, joy, courage, strength. He's he's upbeat. He's very down in verse 16, but he's very up in 17 through 19. And hopeful. Now, the next question was to go back and read the book of Habakkuk. I don't know how many people here read through the whole book over the course of time. Okay, read through the whole book of Habakkuk. What's the context then? of the closing passage in light of the rest of the book. Is Habakkuk a book about good news or bad news? Bad news. Bad news. But even in the bad news, there's hope. Even in the, the bad news that you're, you're going to lose your country, you're going to lose a lot of people you know, you're going to lose every material possession that you have valued. Nevertheless, God's still in control and there's still hope. <clears throat> Now, we turn the next page. The top question is, what is significant from a historical uh, historical context? Well, the historical context is that Israel has been uh, under, uh, is uh, coming under judgment. It's been, think the conditions have been deteriorating in Judah. They have been um, previously under the threat of the Assyrian army about a hundred years before. But now the Assyrian army and the Egyptian army, and they were hoping that Egypt would provide them with some sort of, of uh, aid and strength against the Babylonians. And the Assyrians and the, Babylon- and the Egyptians, rather, were destroyed by the Babylonians at the Battle of Carchemish. Anybody know where Carchemish is located? 
Carcamish is located on the in, in, great political situation right now. It's right on the Syrian-Turkey border. In fact, part of the archaeological site sits in Syria and part of it sits in Turkey. It's only been worked twice in the last since its discovery. Its original discovery was uh, was made by Leonard Wool, uh, Woolsey in about 1911 or 1912, I'm thinking. And here's a great historical trivia question for you. Who was his assistant in the discovery of the archaeological site of Carcamish? T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. See, that'll make great dinner conversation sometime, yeah. And and after that, they worked the dig in like 1912, 1913. Then what happens in 1914? World War One broke out. So it's not worked again until about three years ago. And then it was only worked for a short time. And now we have this Syrian uprising. So that that whole uh, excavation area there really has uh, has not really had had full, full excavation yet. But so that's the context. So Judah now is just isolated. They're surrounded by major enemies, and there doesn't seem to be any hope, and they're going to be invaded by, and, and by, um, by the Babylonians. But the context is that Habakkuk, who is spiritually sensitive, comes to God in the beginning, and he says, O oh Lord, how long are you going to wait to bring a punishment upon my people? That's his basic question. He says, How long shall I cry, and you will not hear? He's been praying and praying that God will bring judgment on his nation, will straighten it out, will restore people to obedience, not unlike the prayer of a lot of Americans today. How long shall I cry and you will not hear, even cry out to you violence, and you will not save? How do you? Why do you show me iniquity, that is the iniquity of the people, and cause me to see trouble for plundering and violence are before me? That's the, He's describing the whole scene of the culture. There's strife and contention. Therefore, the law is powerless. We become lawless. We're unjust. The wicked surround the righteous. Perverse judgment proceeds. The question he's asking is, he's saying, God, bring judgment upon all these evildoers. And then God gives an answer in verse 5. <clears throat> and the Lord looks out and says, I'm going to show you an astonishing thing. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. A bitter and hasty nation, they march through the breath of the earth, and they're possessing dwelling places, they're terrible and dreadful, and their horses are swifter than leopards, you're not going to avoid their cavalry, and I'm going to bring judgment through the Chaldeans. And of course, Habakkuk's response is, Lord, how can a holy God do that? These are worse. This is just going to make things worse. I've been praying for judgment so things will get better. Now I'm praying for... Now you're going to say you're going to bring the, the Chaldeans, and that's just going to make everything worse. So that's the historical uh, context. So from a, um, and he asked the question, what is significant about Habakkuk's message from a political aspect? Any any. Observations. Think not in terms of our political situation, but in terms of their political situation. It's probably not going to be very, a very popular message. No, it won't be a popular message. 
but we've got uh, King Jehoiakim is ruling Judah during this time, and this is going to be uh, a devastating message for the Judean monarchy that they're going to be wiped out through a Chaldean invasion. So this is a, has a devastating political dimension to it. He goes on the next question. He says, we'll save the cultural question till later. From a geographic context, what might be changing for Habakkuk's people geographically? In other words, what geographic relocation of the people is likely to take place if the uh, nation invading us is successful? Right, they're going to be removed and taken away from their homes and relocated under under uh, under Nebuchadnezzar's new deal and they're going to re- be relocated to a new housing project in the heart of Babylon. Okay, the last question he asks is finally what can you determine about the theological context of the passage? What kind of relationship did Habakkuk seem to have with God? How does this passage compare with other prophetic passages you might be familiar with? See, that question indicates that you've read and you're familiar with some of the other prophets and how they interact with God. He goes on to say, what ultimately was God trying to communicate to Habakkuk? What was Habakkuk trying to communicate to God? So what kind of a relationship does Habakkuk seem to have with God? Very personal. Good, very personal relationship. He's having a dialogue with God. So what we see here in terms of cultural, um, in terms of, uh, of literary genre, is that at the first part of the book, we have a question and answer. We have a dialogue going on. Uh, Habakkuk seems fairly familiar with God. Does he? What's the tone of his questioning in verses 2 through 4? Is it lighthearted? Is it heavy? Is it sarcastic? Is it despondent? What's the tone of his question? Despondent and puzzled. Would you use the word irritated? Yeah, he's irritated. Uh, I, I find that interesting because so often when we pray, we have this sense of, of decorum in prayer. And yet when you read through the Psalms and you read through some of the prophets, it's like, Lord, what in the world are you doing? I mean, they're just straight up honest with God in conversation. There's not this uh, veneer of, uh, of politeness there. And he said, Lord, I've been praying and praying and praying about this. Why aren't you doing anything? It just seems like the wicked continue to prosper. What are you doing? And Lord finally answers. So there's a dialogue going on on with that. And uh, that sort of answers the next question. What is God trying to communicate to Habakkuk? Basically, he's in charge. Yeah, God's in charge, and he's going to bring judgment according to his terms and his timing. And what is uh, what is Habakkuk asking? He is. I mean, look how he ends his second question. It's at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, he'll says, Okay, Lord, I'm going to stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. He's already. To, he, God's going to give me an answer, but but I'm already with my retort. There, there's an element of arrogance there already. This God's answer just didn't fit his preconceived notion about how God's going to handle things, and so he's already with his 
with his next with his next answer. Okay, let's go to chapter fifty one. One point that he's making is uh, that Hendricks makes here is the importance of the analogy of Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture, that gives us an ability to properly interpret Scripture. So he uh, raises the first question, and he starts to talk a little bit about this principle of comparing Scripture with Scripture. And what I did already was to do a comparison. His first question is to where is asking the question, where else does, does the Scripture talk about a fig tree? Are, and are there other examples in the Scripture where a fig tree does not bud? What are the circumstances and what are the lessons to be learned? Did anybody do a study on fig trees in the Bible? Jesus cursed, basically. Right. There's a fig tree that, that Jesus curses later on in Matthew, in the Gospels. What else? There was a, there was, I remember another guy that was sitting under the fig tree. Sitting under a fig tree. Yeah, when God said, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. Right, that's, a, they, they said that's that Nathaniel in John chapter 1. Yeah, actually, um, in the rabbis, the best place to sit and meditate was under a fig tree. Now, what I did was I went back and just looked up fig tree all the way back to Genesis. First time we have mention of a fig tree is when Adam and Eve have sinned and they sew, take fig leaves to sew together a garment to cover themselves after they sinned. But then look at how the fig trees are used in in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 8.8, 8, the land is described as a land of wheat and barley. Now pay attention to this so we don't have to revert. You go back over the territory again. The next question is, what else can you find about grapes and our vines that shed some light on this passage? So we'll often see fig trees and vines mentioned in the same passage. So it says, it's a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates and land of olive oil and honey. So what is the, the, the presence of fig trees and vines indicate? Blessing. It indicates prosperity, agricultural, uh, productivity. Now, <clears throat> Judges 9 and 10, this is part of a, uh, of an allegory in Absalom. I'm, I'll skip over that. 1 Kings 4.25, Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree. Vine and fig tree are associated, and what does that indicate? Security, prosperity, he's, it's talking, that doesn't necessarily mean, or does it necessarily mean that every person has a vine and every person has a fig tree? Is this literal or is this figurative? It's figurative. It indicates again, that we would say there's a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Okay? Everybody's comfortable and there's uh, uh, prosperity in the land. Then in 2 Kings 18.31, uh, Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present and come out to me, and every one of you eat from his own vine and every one from his own fig tree. See, this is uh, this is the... Uh, uh, this is Sennacherib's message to Hezekiah when he's got Hezekiah shut up in Jerusalem and they're laying siege to it. And he says, look, if you guys will just cave in and surrender, 
then you can go back to a, to a situation of prosperity and everyone can eat from his own vine and everyone from his own fig tree. We have the vine and fig tree linked together, and again, it's a sign of, of prosperity and security. Psalm 105, he talks about judgment. God struck their vines also and their fig trees and splintered the trees of their territory. So, again, it's a picture of judgment. God is basically judging their source of prosperity, their source of security. Uh, you see the same kind of thing in other other passages. I'll just skip all, all of them. Um, Isaiah 36.16 is a parallel to the passage we read in, in Kings. Jer- Jeremiah 5.17, also a prediction of judgment. They will eat up your harvest, your bread, which your sons and daughters should eat. They'll sh- they shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. They shall destroy your fortified cities in which you trust with the sword. Same kind of context as Jeremiah is predicting what will happen when the Babylonians come. So it's a, he, Jeremiah and uh, uh, Habakkuk are writing at approximately the same time. Uh, eight, Jeremiah 8.13, no grapes shall be on the vine no, nor figs on the fig tree. It's a sign of economic collapse. Then we have Hosea, I will destroy your vines and her fig trees. Again, that's a picture of economic collapse. And we see that going through pictures like Joel 1.7, he laid waste my vine, ruined my fig tree. The vine is dried up and the fig tree has withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, etc. All pictures of judgment and economic collapse. And you see this running all the way through the prophets in relation to the way in which they describe what will happen when Babylon invades. Okay, we can see that goes on through the Old Testament prophets. And then in Matthew 21, Jesus is walking with his disciples into Jerusalem, and he sees a fig tree by the road. He came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? And Jesus said, Surely I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also... If you say to the mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. But what is he demonstrating with the judgment on the fig tree, doing that to the fig tree? A judgment on the nation Israel. That goes back to the imagery from the Old Old Testament, that he's uh, symbolizing that Israel's productivity, Israel's uh, uh, security will soon be destroyed. That's repeated in, in the Gospels in Mark and in Luke as well. Then we have the story here of uh, <clears throat> Nathaniel being under the fig tree. And then the other uh, the other illustrations don't don't relate. So when we read the, have the question, can you find examples of when a fig tree does not bud, that is a picture of judgment on the nation. So when the fig tree doesn't blossom and there's no fruit on the vines, this is all a picture of a lack of prosperity, a lack of productivity, and a picture of economic collapse. So it's not a pleasing time. Then the next question, are there other places where deer uh, 
deer is the word deer is used as a symbol of a person under God's care. God will make my feet like deer's feet. So we'll take deer and Okay, we just picked up the genitive there. So we'll just look up deer. Now we ought to be able to... Yeah, now we have... uh, uh, Can you all think of any passages? Second Samuel... He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on high places. We have that same imagery in Psalm 18.33. makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on high places. Okay, so that's, that's a parallel image that's used in Psalm 18.33 and in 2 Samuel indicating that the, how is the deer's feet? They're stable. That gives them, uh, uh, you know, he's not. They're, they're not um, shaken. So it's talking about the fact that uh, um, that there's a level of security and stability there. God is my strength. Making my feet like deer's feet means that God is going to make me stable despite my the instability of my circumstances. He'll make me walk on on uh, my high hills. Even when we're walking in places um, where there's a level of uncertainty or you could slip, God is going to give you stability and confidence to go in those places. So see, by looking up other passages that use those words and comparing Scripture with Scripture, you can come to identify these figures of speech and come to understand their, uh, their significance and how they're used. Yeah, yeah, it's an idiom, uh, and that's what we have also with the vine, with the vine and and the um, uh, the fig tree. This is an idiom for economic prosperity. When everybody sits under their uh, fig tree and their vine, there it's an idiom for economic prosperity. <clears throat> In uh, chapter fifty-two, we'll go on. Well, wait a minute. Uh, one more question under fifty-one. Why do you think Habakkuk differentiated between the Lord in verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation? And um, why do you think Habakkuk differentiated between the Lord and the God of my salvation and then the term the Lord God in verse 19? What kind of what kind of literature is verse eighteen? It's poetry, right? So we have uh, in poetry in Hebrew poetry you you have uh, synonymous parallelism. 
where the first line is restated in other words in the second line. So the first line, you in both, both lines, the verb is, I, you have a future tense verb, I will. The first line has, I will rejoice in the Lord. The second line parallels joy to rejoice. Uh, let me see if I can um, I'll pull that up, go back to this. Here we have, I will rejoice. This is the uh, Hebrew word here, uh, alo. And then we have joy is the Hebrew word uh, gil. So these are two different words. Both One is the active uh, expre- external expression, and the second is the internal attitude. So the first expresses the uh, rejoicing externally in the Lord. The second is the internal attitude. And then the parallel is that Yahweh here, whenever you have the Lord with your lowercase or uppercase, small caps, that always indicates the personal name of God, Yahweh, and that's parallel to God of my salvation. So we start start with Yahweh, then we have Elohim uh, here, the God of my salvation. So it's identifying Yahweh with the God of my deliverance, and then the the two names of God are then combined in verse 19. It is Yahweh Elohim who is my strength, the Lord who is the God of my salvation. He is the one who is the God of my strength. So by using these different terms, he's bringing out different dimensions to the person of God. Okay, one last thing. Let's go through 52, considering a culture... And that's the end of the study on Habakkuk. Hendricks writes, It's possible that you grow grapes or olives for a living, or you may just happen to be a shepherd, but if not, you'll need to put yourself in the place of a farmer many centuries ago as you again examine Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19. The passage describes somebody waiting fruitlessly, pardon the pun, to see figs and olives bud out on trees and grapes spring forth from vines, But in order for his produce to be at this stage of growth, what things would a farmer have already done to prepare his crops? Okay, so he's asking for a list of things that have to go into a practice before the trees and the vines are going to produce. What's involved in that? Pruning. Hmm? Pruning. Pruning. What else? They would have had to plant it to begin with. Well, you're planting to begin with, and then you have watering. Yeah, you've got a weeding, feeding, pruning, all of that goes goes into the process before the fruit is produced. <clears throat> so that takes some time. The next question he asks is now suppose you defined your job as a herds person. A herds person? Herdsman, shepherd, cattle driver. However, under the present circumstances, you have no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. How do you think you would feel about yourself? How would you feel about God? Have you ever been in a position where you didn't know where the next meal came from? Have you ever been in a position where you were unemployed and you were at the end of your resources and you just didn't have any money left? You didn't have any groceries. You didn't have any food in the refrigerator. You didn't have any place to turn. That's the picture here. How would you feel... What's your mental attitude 
How would you feel about yourself? How would you feel about your future potential? How would you feel about God? So that question is bringing into perspective, you just think God's lost control. He's out of control. God's brought me to this point where I have absolutely nothing, and how can he have a future for me? Because it just looks bleak and hopeless. So the next question he asks is, in the culture of Habakkuk's time, crops and animals were the equivalent of our bank accounts. That's where the money was. People who had neither vineyards, herds, nor olive groves had no means of income. And no means of sustenance, too, we might add. So what was the attitude of the writer? Well, the attitude of the writer is even if he doesn't have anything, he's going to rejoice in the Lord. It reminds me a lot of a passage uh, a passage in Job, and I'm not sure the exact reference. There's a cross-reference in my Bible. It might be it. Uh, where Job says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. No, that's not, the, oh, 15. Yes, Job thirteen fifteen. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. But it's that first statement is a statement of Job's faith in God. Even though he slay me, I will continue to trust him. Suppose Habakkuk were writing from your job and, from your job and culture, rather than using the imagery of olives, grapes, sheep, and cattle, what terms and comparisons might he have used? Well, I already did that, starting off at the beginning, though your bank, bank account is empty, your credit card's maxed out, uh, there's no food in the refrigerator, there's nothing in the pantry, uh, there's no prospect of a paycheck or a job. Uh, those are just some of the ways in which we can express that same idea, that there's absolutely nothing physical, visible, or material that we put our trust in. The only hope is in the Lord. All right, any questions? Okay, now we will not meet again. Try to get this right. This morning people were going, are we going to have class tonight? Are we going to have class tonight? Last time I said, yes, we will have class this week. We will not have class the rest of January. We will not meet the first Sunday in February either. That's February the 2nd. I will barely be back from Kiev, and I will be jet-lagged to the max. It's also Super Bowl. Oh, but how can that affect spiritual things? (laughs) I'll sleep through the Super Bowl. I'll be so jet-lagged after kickoff, I'll fall right to sleep. The next week is the 9th. We will meet every Sunday except the first Sunday in February, okay? Every Sunday in February except the first. However, the 16th is when we're going to have this special event with um, uh, on Israel with Dr. Uh, Susanna Kokanen and the IDF soldiers. So we won't do Bible study methods that week, but we'll still be here. So you can just count on it that every every Sunday night, from February the 9th, the 16th, the 23rd, and then the uh, 2nd of March. Those four nights, we'll be back uh, to finish up our study. Okay? Why is the 2nd of March important? Uh, Very good. (laughs) 
Very good. The rest of you are a little slow. That should have been a, shouldn't have been a pause there. Good, March 2nd, but you don't have it in your heart. That wasn't fast enough. Too many pauses there. 2nd of March, 2nd of March. Yeah. Okay. Texas Independence Day, and I think that'll wrap it up for us. I was going to go out of town, but I think I'm not going to do that now. Okay, let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect upon uh, the, the book of Habakkuk and to see how it really relates, truly relates to our own situation and to the fact that even though we may face a time in our lives when we don't know where the next me- meal will come from, when, when everything seems empty and no future, no hope, our hope is in you. Our hope can only be in you, and you are the only source of our sustenance. Father, we pray that you would just make that real in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.